Good evening, everyone. It's such a pleasure to see so many of you here tonight. And we're very, very honoured and pleased to welcome Mayor Khalifa. Oh shit, you can hear me on the mic. Oh my god. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Wow, it is an honor to be here. Is the Oxford comma in the room with us? <laughs> Huge fan. Um, wow, this is very nerve-wracking, extremely intimidating. This is a room full of young, intelligent people, and I'm here to talk about boundaries to people who have amazing heads on their shoulders. So. It's a little intimidating. I feel like you will never be in a position to, to make bad choices simply because you are here. You've done incredible things in your life to start out with. Um, thank you so much for coming here to hear me speak. I'm shocked there's more than my friends here right now in the audience. This is very cool. Um, thank you for inviting me. You're very, very welcome. Um, yeah, I think that you guys know who I am because at one point in my life, I severely lacked boundaries. Um, but I would like to reintroduce myself. My name is Sarah. You know me as Mia Khalifa. And um, yeah, I'm very excited about this. Absolutely. Um, so Sarah, so you moved to America around the time of 9-11. Did that have an impact on settling in and your experience at school? And if so, how? It had a huge impact. Um, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and it was really close to the Pentagon. There was a lot of children in, in, in my school and in my class whose parents worked there. So school had been going on for maybe two weeks at the time, and it was my first school year in America, so I had a very heavy accent. I was in a program called ESOL, which was basically where you only did one or two classes with the, with the normal students, and then the rest was just learning English. Um, yeah, that was... It was very difficult to navigate social life after that. Um, everyone was very on edge and on high alert, and um, there was just hysteria everywhere, yeah. <laughs> especially towards Arabs and Middle Eastern people. Absolutely. And so from an, from an early background, did you feel that your identity and your you know, visual appearance um, had an impact on how people treated you? Yeah, yeah, which was a little confusing, especially since I was so young and I couldn't pinpoint why I was being treated differently. I, I was also just as scared as everybody else. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what a terror attack was. I didn't know what was happening. And being, feeling ostracized like that didn't help with those feelings. Um, yeah, I, I, think it, I think it made me develop a lot of internalized racism. Um, because I just, I, I couldn't get it. I didn't know why. Yeah. And, and, and how did you cope with feeling so alone and sort of confused at, at that early age? Did, did, did you think you, you know, knew how to cope or did you feel very out of your depth and was it only later that you, were you able to um, sort of deal with those sort of emotions? I think that I turned into a people pleaser when anyone showed me a little bit of attention because I didn't have very many friends growing up. It wasn't until I was about 24, 25 when I started my journey in therapy that mm. I actually started to delve deeper into and, and, and pinpoint those things and call it internalized racism. I 
had anxiety. I felt ostracized. Like I, I was able to, to label all of these feelings that just cultivated into confusion. Yeah, absolutely. And even just sort of the, the term internalized racism is probably not one that really would have been kind of widely available um, in, you know, when you were growing up. And that's sort of one of the lucky things about the, the world we live in now is the sort of openness and availability of that sort of thing, particularly therapy. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I, I'm really happy with how mainstream and how socially accepted or the way it's headed going to therapy is. No, absolutely. Even just, you know, and uh, just meeting you so far, um, it's been really lovely and, um, you know, seeing how down to earth you are. Uh, for, for everyone who, who's not aware, we, we went up to my office and Sarah found my crown, which I wear when I'm feeling, feeling upset. So uh, oh. uh, even that's beginning my journey. I was my nervous, journey. so I put it on. I thought it would help me. No, no, it was great. Um, and so um, in, in the few months that you did work in the porn industry, did you feel at times that your identity was being coerced um, in, in, in order to fulfill a particular fetish? Absolutely. As soon as um, I let slip somehow that I spoke Arabic, it was like a light switch went off. And um, I did not know how to say no at the time, um, to say the least. Um, but when it was presented in front of me what the scene would be involving the hijab, um, the first thing I said was, you're going to get me killed. This is, yeah. this, is, this is insane. This is so bad. But I got pushed back from a room full of middle-aged white men in suits and didn't, didn't say anything more. And, um, you know, having also, after leaving mainstream porn, done some webcam work and now um, being involved in OnlyFans with regards to just non-nude, um, images, but, but having an exposure to lots of girls who are using that platform. Um, do you think that the sort of new age of pornography uh, with, with regards to any fans and webcamming and that sort of thing is one whereby it isn't, you know, it's, these things aren't just dictated by straight white men in suits and that women who choose to, to, to pursue sex work as a career have more autonomy? Or do you think that the same sort of problems masquerade in a slightly subtler um, form. It's a slightly biased question, or not biased, but I, I, one of the first speeches I did at the union was on the motion, this house welcomes the new era of porn. Um, and Megan Bond Hansen came, who was an OnlyFans star, and it's, so it's something I'm very interested in. I just wondered what, what your thoughts on that sort of question were. My thoughts on it are, it's definitely the lesser of the evils. Um, every, everything in, in the industry has its downsides, and I don't condone the rhetoric of women entering the sex work industry. I don't think that should be encouraged or promoted or glamorized or anything that makes it seem anything other than what it is, which is signing your life away. Your digital footprint is so important. I think that sites like OnlyFans are incredible outlets for women who have already entered the sex work industry and want to do it in a safer way and in a more ethical way. But I don't, I, I would never recommend a woman to enter the industry by going to one site over another because I would never recommend for her to do it full stop. Absolutely. And, and, and just on that, on the harms that still exist, if you had the power to change any single law about anything to do with the production of pornography or sex work, what would it be? What do you think would have the biggest impact? I think it would be, it would be two things, to change the age of consent for signing, for signing a porn contract from 18 to 21. Um, and number two would be to take out the words in perpetuity from anything involving a naked woman or a naked man or an individual's body. Yeah. 
there is no need on earth for a corporation to have that much control in perpetuity over someone's image like that, especially when 95% of the people who are entering this industry that they're holding this over are 18-year-olds whose frontal cortex is not fully formed, who are making rash decisions, who don't know what they're doing, who will nine times out of 10 grow up to regret it. And when, you know, when, you, when did you first, is there a moment when you first felt that regret for yourself and decided that you wanted to, to walk away despite you know, all of the pressure and all of the, you know, the factors that sort of prevent people from doing that? I think as soon as it happened, as soon as, soon as it really became public, it was very much a wake-up call. The entire time I was doing it, I felt like I was walking through a daydream. I was very lost. I was making decisions that weren't rooted in, in who I am as a person because I didn't know who I was as a person yet. Um, so when I decided to leave is really when I decided what I had done and the gravity of it. And mm. it, was, it was very daunting and scary because in that moment I also understood this can never be undone. Yeah. And, and when you did make that decision, did you have any support network? Did you have a plan or did you just sort of make a blind leap of faith that anything can be better than this? Oh, anything can be better. I went into, I, I worked at an office for a little bit. I worked as a paralegal and then I worked as a bookkeeper for a construction firm. Um, both jobs, I felt like I was a burden in the office just because anyone who would come in would recognize me and it would be a distraction and there would be whispers and, and all that stuff. And in, in that time period, I, I went off Instagram I reopened my Instagram and in, restarted a new one in 2016. So I was really trying to just be Sarah and live a normal life and it was impossible. And it wasn't just impossible, it was, it, it was affecting the people around me and the people who took a chance on me and hiring me and stuff. So yeah, I took a leap of faith and said, anything is better than this. And, and what would you, I think so many young people, myself included, sort of look up to you and sort of, how open you've been about, about you know, the, the, the mental issues you dealt with during this part of your life. What advice would you give to a young person who feels that they're in a negative place, whether that's a relationship, whether that's a you know, role, whether that's you know, their connection to their family or their job? Um, what advice would you give them in order to sort of have the courage to, you know, to, to step away from that, even if that's all they know and that's all that is there to support them? It's really scary, but when, when, you're, when you feel that way, when you feel those daunting emotions, you know, that you, you know that you've kind of let yourself down and you've done something that's outside of your comfort zone. And that's a learning lesson for where you need to draw a hard boundary in your life. And sometimes it feels good to feel, to feel that low because once you know you've gotten there, you know Number one, you know the decisions you made to get there. Number two, you know that there is something you can do to change it. Yeah, and, and so you've mentioned how you, you know, worked as a paralegal and as a bookkeeper and I guess sort of traditional jobs in, in a sort of non-public facing way. After that, um, I think you went on to a role in Ice of Bands and, yeah. and, and, and so subsequently, obviously, you're a huge social media influencer with you know, over 37 million followers on TikTok. Did you feel that, you know, you've, you've described feeling that everyone knew things about you and felt feeling very uncomfortable. Did you feel that it was better to just lean into the sort of notoriety and fame that you'd unexpectedly and sort of perhaps unwillingly 
gains? No, I was actually, even, even when I started an Instagram again and thought I'm going to try and be an influencer, I still had so much shame harbored inside of me that anytime I would even hear the name Mia Khalifa, it would cause a visceral reaction yeah. in my stomach. Mia was my dog's name, so I named myself after her and it got to the point where I couldn't even say her name. And I'm so happy that I was driven into therapy and started to work on that because it wasn't until maybe 2019, 2020 that I actually started to embrace Mia Khalifa because I realized I had so much more control than I thought I did. It wasn't a death sentence. There was still so much that I could do with my life and with my image. And it has taken so long, but you invited me to speak here. No, absolutely. And it's, um, it was, you know, I, I, it, it's saying, you know, obviously I, I've met you and know you as Sarah and um, it, it is something that, you know, I thought it's very striking that you've, that you've chosen to at least publicly um, you know, use that name on social media and that, um, you know, do, do you think that that's a sort of a self-affirmation and a kind of reconciliation of, 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 of yourself, who you are, with also the persona that people perceive you to be? And, you know, it, is, that a, is, that a, is that an act of self-affirmation that do you see it as? Absolutely. Um, I think it's also an act of exercising autonomy. Um, you can't take it away from me. Yeah. I created it just because I dusted it up a little bit with some dirt. Doesn't mean I can't clean it off. Doesn't mean yeah. I can't change it. Doesn't mean it's still, it's still something that, that, that's, that's mine. No. Um, I have considered going by Sarah so many times, so many times, but at the end of the day, why, why? Because some people are mad that I don't, that I'm not proud of my past, but it's the reason that, that I have a platform. Well, it's not the reason I'm still relevant. Yeah. I've worked my ass off for that, so I'm gonna keep the name. Yeah, absolutely. And was there ever a moment that you didn't feel that way and did want to sort of dissociate even more recently or, have, or has it sort of been a, you know, a steady upward trajectory of, 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 you know, of gaining sort of self-confidence and, and a sense of ownership and autonomy. Yeah, I think it's, it's happened in tandem. I think that the more confident, that I, the more that I've grown into my confidence, the more I've been comfortable with, with, owning, with owning all of it, with owning my past and talking about it and being okay with the contradictory aspect of sitting here today and going by Mia Khalifa while also saying, that's not something I'm proud of. That's not something I want to talk about. That's not something I want perpetuated. Mm. It, both things can be true at the yeah, same time. Ab absolutely. And I think it's you know, very powerful to sort of accept and reconcile those multiple truths that, um, and that people, I think everyone gets in trouble when identity is too limited to one thing and that yeah. you know, everything's subjective really. I'm um, certainly something I've experienced even just on, on the very small scale of Oxford that, you know, things get presented in a certain way. Um, yeah, like you can be president and be fun. I, absolutely. I, said, I, I think only one of those is true, I'm afraid. He has a tutu in his office. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's very, very, very kind of you to say. Uh, uh, I think I, I, think I I'm really... i got to throw you under the bus to win them over. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You can rinse me. It, it happens <laughs> enough. Thank Ask you. them. It's okay. Um, and... I think often we talk about social media in a kind of, particularly in this age, in a, in a sort of detrimental way. Um, I, think you, I think you sort of spoken before about meeting one of your best friends over Twitter, and I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a bit about that and, 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 and how 
social media went from something which I presume at one point in your life was a really awful thing to something which became so empowering in, in the sense that it facilitated a brilliant friendship. Yeah, um, I still feel that way about social media. I met one of my closest friends and my business partner over social media. I met my best friend over Twitter. Um, I, I very much grew up in that millennial era where social media was coming out and it very much shaped our lives. So I still look at social media like, like a social network. I, the apps that I use the most are the ones that my friends are on. I, I, I enjoy that banter, I enjoy keeping up with them. So my relationship with social media was never hindered because of everything. I was still muting subjects and muting accounts and scrolling through Twitter like nothing existed. Being delusional is the best form of therapy. <laughs> well, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg will be on the phone with the social network thing, offering you a contract <laughs> after that. But, um, and, no, we and, don't fuck with Facebook. Yeah, no, that's good. And, uh, and, and, and going sort of beyond, I guess, just your, like, the personal network of friends you already had, um, you've spoken about you know, you're hugely successful on TikTok and people find you incredibly relatable. Um, and you've sort of spoken before, I think previously, about how about, about how that sort of majority female audience is, is, is really important for you. And um, a speaker who came a few months ago, Malala, I think commented on, a, on, one, of your, um, on one of your posts. And, and, and how, much, you know, how much joy does that give you that when, you've, when you see the Im impact you're able to have on an everyday level of, on people's lives and the sort of community, you know, tens of millions of people which are around you in a positive way? It was insane. It was surreal when she, she actually followed me that day too. And I was like, Fucking Malala knows I exist. <laughs> what the? <laughs> like what? And my, it's so embarrassing because my TikTok bio has always been not Malala or Mindy Kaling. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, not Malala, but. Yeah, well, no, she, well, she, well, she, well, she's very lovely. I, she's, I, so, she's so incredible. She's very lovely. That's the least you can say. Yeah, about no, Malala. okay, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, she, she's obviously an inspirational world leader. Oh my god. Um, but no, I, I, I met her once, I met her very briefly when she came, but I doubt she knows that I exist. Um, I, I'm sure she does. She, um, she seems like an incredible person. She seems like one of those people who, <laughs> you'll probably get a Christmas card from her. I, well, I, I hope, I hope so. if Malala, if you're watching this, that'd be great. Um, uh, no, yeah, and she's got a really lovely husband as well. Um, oh my God, her wedding photos, I'm so happy for her. No, I, was, I had a great chat with him about, um, about the Pakistani cricket team. So um, yeah. Well, cricket's in, very big there. No, it's very big. Um, and, so, you know, and so how did social media and TikTok for you also help you to you know, overcome your boundaries that you've had in life? You said you wanted to talk a bit about boundaries, personal and professional. And has TikTok been, you know, therapy as well as one you've mentioned is one of the huge things. Is, has TikTok been kind of another which has really helped you in that sense? Absolutely, especially after I kind of accidentally stumbled upon the audience that I have that I always thought was out of my reach um, I got vulnerable once and it hit an audience that I did not even know existed which was women who related to me and that opened up so many mental doors for me about my life and my future and what my options were um, finding that on TikTok completely changed the trajectory of everything including my goals and what I thought was possible. It was, it was really incredible. It also gave me the confidence to seeing, seeing the other women in that, in that kind of demographic because you know how the algorithm works. Once you find something, the rest of it finds you. So 
seeing all of the videos on my For You page of other women who are in similar situations as me, similar mindsets as me, um, contemplating similar things as me, it, it was so validating to see them going through it and see them um, just he, learn from them, learn mm. from them, see what their opinions were, see what they weren't, how, how they weren't afraid to number one, talk about it online, and number two, be open, be open to kind of talking about it in a community. Like the comment section is my favorite. It's the best, especially when, when it hits the right audience. It's truly just like support and encouragement and advice being thrown back and forth and nothing but just, <laughs> just like all of us holding hands around a tree. And why, why do you think it is that there are so many people who feel so connected to you? Do you think it's a sort of reflection of a lot of the misogyny that still exists today, that so many women feel that they themselves have been put in a, in a similar circumstance of being, you know, labelled as certain things or, or, or stereotyped or fetishized? Um, and, and so I guess to follow up on that, but sorry, very rudely before we even answer that question, uh, how, how do you envisage we move beyond that? Is this the two questions at a time where I can skip one? Yeah, you can skip one of them <laughs> if it's bad. No, sorry, say it again. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, so firstly, do you, think, uh, do you think that because so many women find all of your media outputs so um, relatable, that that's a statement about the huge misogyny that exists? Oh, absolutely. I think that seeing the overwhelming reaction of how many people can relate to me was also very jarring for me because I hope no one can ever relate to me that makes me so sad, that makes me so scared for the human race and for mankind in general. Um, that's exactly what it is. I think, I think that it's not, it's not a very niche story when you look at the big picture. The big picture is, is being insecure, feeling ashamed, feeling inadequate, and struggling with personal boundaries. Mm. And, how, and how do you think as a society we can overcome um, obviously, those all you know individual um, battles people go with, but they result from societal problems which inflict those mental states on us. So, how do you suggest, um, as a society, what kind of attitudes would you like to see, um, you know, promoted more um, for for us, you know, for us growing up? More acceptance, more empathy, more patience, more understanding more talking about it, talking about it in general, just makes it, makes it less of something that, that happens behind closed doors, like locker room talk and, yeah. and feelings of, of inadequacy. Like women should talk to each other. Women should support each other. Men should ask us questions. Like you should be curious about how you can make us feel comfortable and what makes us uncomfortable and having those conversations and opening those doors is is the most important thing absolutely and you know on that we'll move very shortly onto the q a and we hope to have you know encourage everyone to engage Hi, engage in the conversation but a, a few final questions um i was I, I think you donated a huge amount of money to lebanon um and i just wanted and i think initially there was a negative reaction to that um yeah and I just wanted you to tell us a bit about that and how your, how your relationship with your home country has changed over your life and how you feel about Lebanon now. I mean, that's home. I feel, I feel very disconnected from it, but, this, but at the same time, I feel 
a strong urge to be as connected as I possibly can at all times to it. Um, the initial reaction was, uh, we don't want your dirty money, which the Red Cross didn't agree with, thank God. They were like, actually, we'll take your money. We don't care where it came from. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a little, I actually did not expect that when it happened. And usually I'm pretty good at like looking 10 steps ahead and, and understanding what's about to come my way. Nothing ever really shocks me anymore, but that, that jolted me a little bit. Didn't shock me, but I um, was a little surprised. Um, but the reaction following that was overwhelmingly supportive and um, a, a lot of people in Lebanon came to my defense and very much shut it down, which gave me a lot of hope. Um, in the last few years, I feel like my relationship with the people in Lebanon has gotten stronger. I've been, I've been, talk, I've, I've been actually talking to people instead of just seeing the things that I see online. I've been going on, on podcasts that are based in Beirut and uh, speaking to journalists over there and just speaking to, to people who I respect and admire and whose, whose thoughts I think are actually going to be impactful over there and make change. And they are not of the mindset of, of people who, who are saying that yeah. they don't need my money. Yeah, absolutely. And, and finally, um, what, what's next for you? What are you excited about um, in the coming months, years? And, and where do you see the rest of your life going? Well, I'm launching a jewelry line, so I'm really excited about that. It's really, really scary to be a first-time hmm. business owner. I've been an LLC for a while, which in America is like when you yourself are a corporation, but actually launching a tangible business is really scary. And what I see myself doing for the rest of my life is that. And I'm so excited to have created something that's, that I can put my hands yeah. on and give to my future children one day. And, and what, bits of, what bits of that, what's sort of the ethos behind that brand? And, and, and how does it speak to you as a person? Well, it's called Shaitan, which means devil in Arabic, and it's very much just a big middle finger to... <laughs> <laughs> just most men in the Middle East. Uh, yeah. on, on that note, um, I think we should all give you a round of applause. Um, so far. And we'll now look to questions from the audience because we've got such an amazingly packed house tonight. So we're going to do these, these um, conference style. So we're going to uh, get the microphone over to one person and then to another. And then uh, Mia will answer both at once. And then we'll go back just to speed things up. At one? <laughs> well, you, or just one at a time. As in, you know, we can, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. That, that's the plan at least. <laughs> Um, so, or do, do you want to just do them one at a time? Is that, is that no, 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 go Okay, on. Let's, let's go. Let's, uh, we're, we're testing this. Um, but uh, the member in the red on the front row. Um, well, hi. Firstly, I just wanted to say um, thank you so much for coming here and speaking today. I think you're genuinely the epitome of modern-day progressive feminism. You are really an inspiration, the fact you've been able to turn away from the exploitation of the industry and expose it for what it is and just kind of come out of your shell and inspire others who have just been struggling in the same line of work. But I just wanted to ask, 
how do you think that the fetishization in the porn industry can be dealt with? Because that is one of the main issues that face sex workers today. And I know you yourself experienced it by being forced to wear a hijab during um, your line of work. So how do you think that that can be dealt with and yeah, just handled today? First of all, thank you. I love your dress. You look so beautiful. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but that is up to us. It's about consumption. It's about choosing. There's nothing wrong with porn. There's a choice you make when you go to consume it. Do you want to consume it ethically or do you want to support corporations that fetishize cultures and, and women and, and all of these things? And it's not, it's not just fetishization. It's actually, it's so much deeper than that because the, the verbiage that they use when they're even writing the descriptions of these things is so racist and, and, and perpetuates violence against these, against these groups. And it, it very much starts with us, how we consume it, what we decide to promote, what we decide to give our money to, what we decide to give clicks to, because even if, we're, even if you're not paying for it, there are ads that run on the sides of these websites, so they are getting paid for it. So it's just about consciously shopping. Um, uh, the member uh, right at the back, just on the, the no, the, by the door. Thank you. Um, first of all, I want to say, Hello, thank you for Oxford. Inshallah, I'll be back. أكيد وشكرا على كل الفيديوهات عن فلسطين. Someone who is. أنا دم فلسطيني. دم Secondly, uh, I want to ask, you spoke about um, going to the US, you know, when you were young and the perception of your, like, nationality as an Arab. Um, and obviously it did, like, I'm sure it made it really difficult for you. Um, so I want to ask about how, like, your kind of connection with that identity changed over time. But also a lot of young people right now, for example, who are, I came to the UK when I was, like, 16 oh on my, my own. Um, and same thing with like my, the rest of my uh, family, uh, with my young sister, sorry. Um, so yeah, so how do you kind of, what do you advise the young people who are like coming to a new kind of country with new uh, culture and kind of trying to adjust without kind of feeling insecure about missing that kind of cultural knowledge uh, and kind of their identity uh, as an Arab really? Thanks. No, thank you. Um, I hope that everyone who comes to this country from the Middle East never goes through that period where they suppress their identity and their culture and, and that internalized racism that they, that they feel from being different and from wanting to assimilate too much. Um, there's nothing wrong with wanting to, wanting to fit in, but one of my biggest regrets is not embracing who I am and where I come from and, and what I am until my mid to late 20s. Um, I'm very regretful of that because I feel like I wasted so much time in, in my younger years hating who I was because I wasn't the same. And the older you get, the more, the more you realize like that, that's, that's you, that's, that's your lineage, it's your blood. It's so nice to feel connected to that and to and to maintain that and to, and to like, nurture it and be able to pass it down to, to your future children. Habibi. Um, 
Um, to the member just here, in the third row, yeah, yeah you just, you just Thank you so much for being here. And by the way, your outfit is so cool. Oh, oh Can I just say you. that? You look amazing. Oh, you. Um, you spoke earlier about therapy and starting it and how you helped. And even though therapy is a lot more mainstream nowadays, there's still a lot of like societal taboo, cultural taboo that comes with that. So how would you, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start out in therapy and maybe is scared because their family or their friends or the community doesn't approve of that? And like, what sort of advice do you have for them? Thank Don't you. Don't fucking tell them. <laughs> What? Don't tell them. Don't go, go to therapy. <laughs> if, you're, if you feel like someone around you or your family member is going to judge you for going to therapy, they need therapy. <laughs> Get, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's my advice. No, anyone, anyone who will judge you for, for going to therapy has things that they do not want to face about themselves and probably don't want you to find out about them. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to the member on the front row, just there. And, uh... No, there is more and more content on OnlyFans is generated by AI, and oh, AI, artificial intelligence, and also sex dolls, sex dolls are getting better. Do you think it can come to a point where real sex workers will become marginalized because of technology? God, I fucking hope not. There's nothing scarier than, than AI and where it's headed. I'm really, really scared that it's gonna be similar to cryptocurrency where the technology is going to advance faster than the legislation surrounding it. And once things like that happen, it's very hard to put it back in the box. So my answer is no. And I, I, I don't think that real people are going to be mar marginalized from AI, but I do think that where AI is headed can be very dangerous. Um, but no, I don't think there's ever not going to be a demand for like a real human person. Thank you. Uh, the uh, member just back there in the orange shirt, yes. Um, thank you for coming here. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, you said you felt like you couldn't say no about the hijab in the industry. Um, I just wanted for you to expand on that and kind of touch on the basis of how do you feel about your impact coming from Lebanon, which is a multi-religious society with many Muslim women especially, and like what have you done to rectify kind of these mistakes which kind of have like been done uh, originally? What, what have I done to, to rectify the, the act? Yeah, so um, what have you done to rectify what has happened? Um, and um, how do you feel about the impact on Lebanon, which is where, where you're from, and like the multi-religious society in it, which is made of Muslim women, like 40% I think it is. I do feel guilty that women who look like me are instantly sexualized just because they have dark hair and glasses and are brown. Um, so there, I, I do harbor a lot of guilt around that because I, it, it, it just, it, it really breaks my heart. Um, but I don't think that I've done much to rectify it because I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel like there's much to apologize for. I, I do feel bad for the inherent effect that it
but I do feel bad for the women that it has inherently affected from, from that ripple. And the first part of the question was, um, uh, you said that you couldn't say no to the hijab thing because of you were 21, young. Um, I just wanted to, for you to kind of expand a little bit on that point because... Well, it wasn't so much that it was forced on me. It's more so that there's different levels to coercion. There's, um, there's coercion, there's force, and then there's also pressure. And when you're young, you don't have that confidence to stand in your ground and say something, even though you feel it. There's also a lot of intimidation that comes along with being a woman in a room of just men and not knowing what a reaction would be. Like I was in a situation not very long ago and I'm a 30 year old woman. I did not want my friend to leave me alone in a room with somebody because I knew I was going to be asked something and I knew my answer would be no. And as a woman, you never know how a man is going to react when he is faced with rejection. And it's a very scary feeling. So I think th that's, that's what I mean when I say I didn't want to do it because I didn't want to do it. I, I, knew, I, I knew what the general reaction would be, but I also did not feel in my power enough to, number one, walk away or number two, say no at the very least. So perhaps the fame that might, like at the time, what you saw as might have been a fame from kind of this industry, do you, would you say that kind of clouded your judgment a little bit or? No, because it was before that. Yeah, it was long before that. And as soon as that switch happened where it started to gain traction and it was in the media is instantly when I left. It, reality really hit right away. Okay, thank you. And, and, and on that, would, do, you, do you think it's a problem that, you know, an 18-year-old girl can sign something in a room full of men where there is, there is no support, there is no explanation? You talked about impetuosity. I wouldn't have known what that meant if, when I was 18. Oh, I absolutely didn't know what that meant. Um, yeah, I think it's extremely predatory, the, the verbiage in the contract, the contracts, and the way they're placed in front of the young women. It's unethical at minimum and predatory, just baseline. Um, yeah, we can take questions from the gallery. So uh, the uh, member just there in that window, yes, absolutely, just, 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 just speak throw quite loudly as we have no microphone. <laughs> I really hope so. Um, I know that there's a lot of a, a, a good amount of women who are who are starting their own production companies that are female-centered, female producers, females on set, sensitivity training on anyone who's on set. So it is happening. There there are things and people and and corporations that you can support, and it's growing more and more each day. But paying for it is probably the best way to do it because all of the tube sites and all of the free sites, they're owned by, by a conglomerate that is just feeding into the sex trafficking industry. Thank you. Uh, yes, the member just there. Oh, so there's a microphone coming. Just, just 
Thank you. Um, first, I'd like to say I don't think anyone here is under the illusion that you retain any kind of culpability for the marginalization of women and, you know, women of color. Firstly, I'd just like to say that. Um, but uh, obviously the internet um, and the internet in general exacerbates the, that marginalization and exploitation. Um, and you've already spoken to how that extends to people of color. But I'd like to know what you think um, in relation to queer people and how um, the internet potentially exploits queer people also? I mean, social, Twitter especially. Twitter is probably the pits of it. Um, it's, I, I think meme culture has a lot to do with that. Put it, formatting something as a joke just perpetuates the the fact that it's okay to talk about those things and, and to speak like that and to, and to make comments like that. And I think that al allowing these things to happen on social media and not cracking down on it, but instead cracking down on a nipple or a curse word and not actual abuse and exploitation and, and things that are dangerous and, 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 just being spread like nothing, that's, that's, on, that's on the social networks, but it's also on us and how we consume it and what we, what we allow and, yeah. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, just by. Hi, I think you're really cool. Um, <laughs> Um, so I really resonated with the idea of like um, going into like therapy and the idea of um, I guess internalized racism because obviously like I kind of grew up with that like being like from the UK and stuff and the idea of like sort of adopting a new name and embracing it because like I go by a different name to what I was born with just because of like my identity and stuff like that. But um, so like I really resonated with that and like it's it's a real feeling like so thank you for like being able to like platform that in a way that many people won't really empathize with because they never go through it. But um, my question is, um, how do you like manage to like stand your ground in a, like, in a situation where you like, most, like, don't necessarily feel like the most confident and stuff like that? Because when people ask me that question, I come across as like really confident, really extroverted, like everyone thinks that I am, but like I'm always like faking it until I make it and I kind of want to, grow out of that because like I don't want to just keep thinking that like I've got to fight for my life every day like it would just be nice to genuinely just feel confident within my own judgment as opposed to appearing as so so I guess how have you like grown to be that sort of person that is able to do that or at least appear to do so better than like I would I don't know yeah oh no 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 but you're doing it right you do have to fake it till you make it like when I'm standing my ground and and exercising my boundaries and where they are I'm like this no <laughs> like you gotta fake it till you make it as soon as you're behind closed doors you can let that out and like really really experience how terrifying that was but the the real confidence comes from knowing that you just went out of your comfort zone to say no and it was fucking terrifying but knowing you did that is is where the confidence will grow and then it's just like a vicious cycle that gets easier and easier as it goes of this getting just a little bit more, just a little bit more calm each time, but it is scary every single time. That's my answer. Make it till you fucking make it. Thank you. <laughs> well, the mic's there. Do you have questions for her? 
One issue currently with the industry is that young children are exposed to pornography at quite a young age, 10, 12. What more do you think can be done to prevent this happening? And do you think enough is currently being done? Stop giving these two-year-olds iPads. Cut off the access. Exercise parental controls on, in your settings. Like, parent. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes, uh, just at the front row here. Oh, Alex, you just walked. Sorry, 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 that. <laughs> Hello, thank you. Hi. Uh, so, I have two questions. First one is about the porn industry as a market, because there's always going to be demand, and so there, there has to be supply somehow. I mean, there will be supply somehow. And there, there are these movements that kind of try to destigmatize the porn industry and sex workers. And I was wondering what are your, what are your thoughts about this and about kind of how, if, if you are not advocating for people to go into the porn industry, how would you think this market is going to work? And what are your th thoughts about this like, movement of destigmatizing the porn industry? And my second question is about uh, male porn male sex workers and male porn stars and what are your thoughts about that about do you think that male porn stars are also being fetishized and um, objectified yeah my ADHD is so bad I'm going to start with the second one because I remember it the most um, I can't repeat I, it <laughs> I th oh the destigmatization de um, I think that we can destigmatize it without also encouraging it um, we don't need to villainize and, and punish the people who are in the industry simply because they're in it. Um, we also don't need to encourage people that it's all rainbows and glamour and, and fun and empowerment and feminism. Like, that's really dangerous. Young women are very tired of working minimum wage jobs and when they hear these things on the internet and see these TikToks of like, I'm a sugar baby, my life is so good, you should be doing this too. That's grooming. That is grooming, period. Like we, it should not be encouraged. It's not like that. What I say by you shouldn't enter it, what I mean by that is if you have already, if, if you've already entered the sex work industry and you want to find a safer way to do it that's not in a strip club or on the streets or, or something like that, then OnlyFans and things like that are a great option for, for, for you. You've already been in the, in, in the industry and you want to find a safer way to do it, that's when it's a good option. Um, and the second question, I'm so sorry. Male porn stars and male sex workers male in general. Male porn stars. Mm. They already have a leg up, they're male. We can move on from that one. I think we have time for two more questions. Um, the member in the sort of third row back on with the blue shirt on the right, you've had your hand up for a while. Yeah. Thank you for the talk. I'm curious in what you said about the comments you've received about people who can relate to you. And I'm wondering if there are any other industries or parts of society that you've learned that people have faced similar experiences that might not be known to the audience and people in general that also have ethical considerations that people might not be aware of? Very much so. Um, I think that, I think that um, the 
contracts in the music industry are also predatory and we see artists going to court against their record labels all the time. Taylor Swift was suing her, like, yes, yes. And, I, and the more I started to, to talk about it, the more people saw that the parallels are very similar to so many things. And it's not just an issue in the porn industry. I think that we need to look at contract law as a whole. And yeah, the final question, uh, the front row of the press bench. Hi Mia, Hi. Uh, we met earlier. Um, so when we met, we talked about, well you told me about growing up as a young Lebanese girl and how your um, childhood or your background affected your view on feminism. I did want to ask, but we didn't have time, but I did want to ask, um, how has your view on feminism or like how has it changed since you were a child? Has it become more positive or like how has it changed due to your experiences? Absolutely. I think that growing up I was encouraged to be small and not take up space and do as I'm told. And as I've gotten older, my view of feminism kind of moved away from, from what, it, what it is for me, what it was for my culture to what I believe it to be, which is an ever-evolving relationship with yourself and with women around you. Um, I'm constantly learning from people around me and I'm constantly learning more about myself. So that, that's feminism to me, keeping an open mind constantly and, and speaking with as many women as I can and hearing their stories and yeah. And I think I speak for all women everywhere when we say we are really proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, just, just uh, f finally, one, one final question from me. We, we try to ask everyone here, what is one piece of advice that you would um, leave us, that you want to leave us with today that you would have loved to have known uh, if, if you were in our position sitting here? I would have loved to know that, um, that everything that you're looking for is inside of you. Um, Confidence is really just listening to you and what your morals are and what your values are and what you want out of your life and implementing that. That's, that's literally what confidence is. It's not having a good hair day. It's not having a good skin day. It's not wearing a good outfit. It's truly just being secure in the choices you've made that day or that week or that year and knowing that no matter what, that can't be taken away from you. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor.